everybody, and welcome to the TechCrunch podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing uh, technology research and news. I am Benjamin Moses, the director of manufacturing technology, and I'm here with Stephen Lamarca, manufacturing technology analyst. Steve, how are you doing, man? How was your day? Doing great. It's been a busy day. It's been a busy week. It was yep. only Tuesday <laughs> as of right now. You people will hear this Friday, but. Um, uh, last week was busy, so hopefully by the time people are hearing this, I'm I'm still alive. <laughs> it's very ominous, but I think it'll be it's very positive. I think it'll be okay. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be alive. <laughs> so, what do we want to talk about this week? Um. Well, first off, what you have for lunch? Lunch, uh, my usual nothing. I've been slacking. Nothing. Well, I've been snacking, so I probably had potato chips. Okay. Very, uh, yeah, I'm not compl- I wouldn't complain about that. That sounds pretty tasty. Yeah. Um, I uh, made some fish, some uh, some beer battered cod. Nice. But uh, my favorite thing about that meal, other than eating it, was <laughs> cooking it. And I actually uh, used my cast iron pan okay. for uh, a majority of that cooking. And I can happily say that I've really built a strong rapport with this cast iron pan. <laughs> and um, when I was watching a video from on YouTube about uh, how brake pads are made, um, this company NRS Brakes uh, was talking about their steel backing plate on their brake pads. Um, typically, brake pad companies will uh, treat that steel backing plate by, it's, it's first stamped, Sure. And then they coat it by either painting it or um, galvanizing it. Yep. Well, this company, NRS Brakes, they uh, they pickle and oil the steel backing plate That's on cool. their brake pads. So I looked that up um, because it sounded – in the brief explanation during this one video I was watching, I thought about, no way, this can't be. It, sound, it sounded a little familiar. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. sure enough, like – using my Google machine and looking up pickling and oiling like steel for, uh, manufacturing purposes. Right. Um, it is almost exactly how you should be cooking with cast iron pans or or cast iron cookware in general. Yeah. And so like often with cast iron, you'll hear people talking about like seasoning it and you know, it's, you're bringing the, the iron up to a certain temperature then you're pouring some oil on it and then spreading out the oil because at a high temperature, the pores in the cast iron or carbon steel for that matter, um, open up right. and allow the oil, which has thinned out at high temperature, uh, to seep into those pores. Sure. And that process is called polymerization. And then you turn off the burner or the oven, whatever you have your iron in, um, or whatever you have heating your iron rather, uh, as it cools down, those pores close up and it keeps that oil in there. Right. Um, and that keeps the surface slick and also prevents the surface from rusting. Um, so that's like, that takes up the oiling part of pickling and oiling. The pickling part is really when you're cooking, <laughs> or at least what you should be doing when you're cooking using cast iron. And that is applying a little bit. You don't want to take a lot of acidic uh, material to cast iron because sure. you don't. That will rust it. But a little bit is okay. And um, like once you start browning some food really nicely to make sure you get all of that flavor out of the cast iron, yep. and certainly to clean up the cast iron so it wipes clean when you're done with it. Um, 
you want to deglaze the food. And that is most easily done by pouring a little bit of wine into the pan. Okay. Um, and the acid in the wine releases anything that might be stuck to the material, any sure. surface uh, uh, impurities or uh, um, you know just stuff that you don't want in your pan to clean it, help clean it up, and bring that flavor into the food when you take it out of the pan. Yep. Is is that's the process of deglazing, which is essentially a a more culinary uh, <laughs> a, a take on the pickling process and yeah. pickling and oiling like steel. Uh, material for manufacturing is they actually take like you know bar stock or what what have you and they marinate it for the lack of a better <laughs> term in hydrochloric acid for right. a prescribed amount of time if you don't do it long enough it won't you know remove surface impurities or blemishes but if you do it too long it will actually make um the uh, the material too brittle right and right. will uh, allow for cracks and while it's not exact that those negatives aren't exactly the same if you if you use too much uh acidic material with cooking with cast iron you will you're at risk of rust sure. and you're at risk of stripping your seasoning your beautiful right. seasoning that you've worked years <laughs> to form but um it was just wild taking that science and that most importantly, manufacturing science and seeing how closely it applies to uh, to uh, cooking with yeah, cast iron. So that, that was really fun. That's a really good parallel from uh, you know life applications to manufacturing. We processed a lot of uh, stainless steel parts and titanium through our plating shop, which did pickling. Um, and it's interesting that we process so much stainless steel through the pickling shop because you would assume – one of the reasons you pickle is to prevent corrosion in the future and you're processing stainless steel. Why would you get corrosion? It's because you're processing stainless steel with all these other uh, manufacturing tools that aren't uh, stainless steel. They, those will corrode. Those could right. get embedded or you get organic material on the on the stainless yeah. steel. And you got to remove all that at some point. It's really difficult to manufacture in a clean room. It is. It is. If it's possible yeah. at all. So, so a lot of times we'll pickle our stainless steel parts before we shipped it out to the end customer, either final assembly or welded assembly uh, yeah. to prevent any type of corrosion. Also for titanium, it helps a lot too, where um, uh, titanium uh, oxidizes in uh, an oxygen-rich atmosphere, which is just sitting on a raw tool rack. So it, it um, develops this layer of... Uh, um, uh, on the surface and to remove that before you begin welding it. So you minimize porosity as you'll pickle the parts. Yeah. Um, and to your, you're exactly right on where the time and duration is very sensitive um, to process the parts to make sure you get enough of it removed, but also so you don't damage the part. And there's a lot of right. risk of um, that acid with the, with the stainless and the metals. That's cool. That's a really interesting life application. You know, um, I, I can't, I can, I always will remember one of my freshman year of college chemistry professors uh, telling me, telling the class rather that why is, or asking why is stainless steel stainless? <laughs> because it rusts so well. <laughs> and I'm not exactly sure what that means, sure, but sure. I, it sounds good and I'll go with it. But <laughs> It's funny. Yeah. That, that some materials will stop, uh, will develop a layer of rust on the surface and stop. Some will just keep eating through. Right. That's uh, that's that's funny. So uh, one thing I wanted to bring up was, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Boston Dynamics. They're four like yeah. AGV uh, spot spot. You can call a spot. I'll call it a robot. 
I'll call it a machine. Okay. Uh, I refuse to provide it human qualities. It's a, it's a machine. It's uh, not a dog. It's not a dog. <laughs> uh, but the ability for it to react to environment, so reacting as in you give it a command and it is able to articulate, understand the environment and move accordingly is pretty impressive, right? So there's cameras and sensors and all this infor- uh, uh, ways for it to kind of sense its surroundings. pretty cool. Uh, but Verge per- published an article um, that you can buy one of these robots, as in buy... I logged onto the website and there's a buy now button and there's a price listed to it. So you can buy this robot, probably with some accessories and a few other things to control it for $74,500. That is one heck of a purebred. <laughs> That's an expensive dog. Uh, <laughs> and there's two things that I like about this article. One is they give you the price up front, Steve. Do you know how hard it is in manufacturing to get a price up front? If you say call me for a price, I'm going to throw yes. my laptop out the window. I'm I can really tell you in the that. first few <laughs> first few months working at AMT that people hate talking about prices, <laughs> and I get that in some cases it's probably a uh, uh, an antitrust uh, thing. But, maybe, uh, maybe. But come on, man! If, if, if I'm coming at you with money, <laughs> you should be able to at least give me a price. This this isn't like you know the high end watch industry where yeah. if you have to ask, you don't have enough. <laughs> yeah. You know, come on. I'm trying to buy commodity style stuff. Give me a price <laughs> up front. Give me a buy now button. I don't want to talk to anyone. Uh, and the second uh, big takeaway was uh, uh, I can buy it. Like so, me Benjamin living in Virginia, if I had seventy five seventy five thousand dollars, which I never will in my life, uh, I could buy that buy that thing now. So it's not like they're uh, advertising to a discrete customer. They're advertising to uh, a niche shop somewhere. You literally anyone I could see. I'm in a community where someone down the street could actually buy this, and I could see it running down the street uh, where I live. Was there a uh, was there a button next to buy now uh, that said uh, finance with a firm for zero percent APR? <laughs> they take you to some shady zero uh, percent uh, uh, interest company that'll. I feel like they're going to get a lot of that. What's <laughs> <laughs> that about? Oh, I should partner with them. I'm on it. So I thought that was really interesting. That uh, it's a really cool approach to say, hey, we have this thing. You can buy it. Here's a price leave us alone just buy our stuff so yeah that's cool man i make really like that make it easy you yeah. know with, with with the new generation of people coming into the manufacturing industry the young kids <laughs> I, I can tell you right now that my generation millennials and younger sure we don't want to talk to people <laughs> when spending money yes <laughs> like yes. you're like we do enough my generation does enough research buying stuff right you're not gonna tell i'm not gonna say that but you are ve- <laughs> it is very unlikely that you, a salesperson, are going to tell me something I don't know about something I'm about to throw down tens of thousands. Right. And if, if, if I'm a manufacturing uh, uh, machine tool buyer for some huge factory, a couple million dollars <laughs> yeah. for a uh, for a, maybe a set of or a couple machine tools, I probably know about it. And I'd rather buy it on a web-based platform where right. I can just enter right. my information myself and yeah. not write a check because you know i'm not some boomer that likes to print my own money you got a fax your credit i card collect number. gold coins yeah. that's the other thing no man let me give you a debit card and let me get out of here if you have to tell, tell me when my stuff is going to ship give me a tracking number telling someone your shipping information over the phone is the worst way to send that information i i have them read it back and it's wrong like three or four times i cannot get get it straight every time i would do that <laughs> Uh, so let's talk about the test bed, man. Let's. Uh, uh, oh, dude. What we got going on the test bed? Well, now that we're back I can to work. Happily, happily report back to work. Um, it took a while to get used to being back in the office, but you know, 
I finally got used to working from home. So you, naturally, you now know, we got to change it. You got to adapt to change once again. There's four, uh, you and four people are in the office. Yeah, it's, it's probably four people <laughs> out of a staff uh, of almost 100. That's weird. I was the only person on my on our side of, of tech side of the building. Wow. I was the only person in our quadrant of the floor. Oh, that's funny. It was wild. Um, but uh, so after getting settled in and hooked up to everything again, the, the network and whatnot, um, last week I get a call uh, from Alon. Who had a uh, one of our uh, one of our industry analysts in the uh, strategic analytics department? He calls me up and he's like, "Hey, I've got this 3D printed part yep. out of ABS plastic, solid, no internal lattice structure, um, and it has a hole going through it. But I need like a, a blind hole at the top, um, a stepped hole uh, on on one side of the part to uh, that's only going to be like a couple millimeters deep, right?" Um, and I, I, I bought the drill bit, the special drill bit, and I can't do it with hand tools. This is what he sure. tells me. Sure. Is it cool? Do you think we could do something like this in the pocket NC? And he said, I'm like, dude, send the nudes. Let me see what the picture, <laughs> let me see what the part looks like. And I hope he didn't uh, get them mixed up. <laughs> and fortunately, fortunately I saw this part and I was like, we can, we can put that in the vice. We awesome. can clamp down on that. We can put our jaws around that part. <laughs> Good. And, uh, yeah. Uh, um, so he comes over to uh, yesterday to uh, the office, um, brings the part, brings the tool. It's a high speed steel Forstner drill bit. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but uh, it doesn't matter. It's high speed steel and it's a drill bit, you know, whatever. Nobody cares, Nobody cares about that. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's a five eighths inch tool. Um, he had called when he called me last week. He was like, what's the biggest tool? that we can, that you can fit in the pocket NC. And I was like, wow, man, this is really going places. Yeah. But, uh, um, but uh, I, tell, I tell him the largest collet we have for the spindle is a five sixteenths inch collet. So while it can theoretically take a tool bigger than that, the shank cannot exceed five sixteenths. That's right. the biggest I can do at least in the next few days. Um, and uh, he's like, great, I've got the tool. Cool. Um, so he comes in with this uh, 5 16th shank, 5 8 inch Forstner drill bit. Um, and we get the, the work holding all set up. We get the tool in place. We get everything lined up so it looks nice. And I've cut plastic before. I've cut machining wax. I've cut Delrin before. Sure. Let's crank up the speed to uh, 5 to uh, or uh, 8 and a half to 10,000 RPM, which is you know, what I know with the pocket NC, right. how it likes to chew through plastics. Sure. Um, again, that's typically done. I typically cut plastics on the uh, um, pocket NC that are not um, ABS plastic, but Delrin and wax, and I'm using carbide. Right. So that this is our first red flag that I didn't pick <laughs> up on at all. And so we do a few first few pecs at like 85,000 RPM or 8,500 RPM few pecs and it starts to smell bad smell, oh no smells terrible <laughs> stop the spindle we look at the hole that we've made so far you know the, the half millimeter deep uh stepped hole that we made and it's just, it's just gummed up oh uh, no melted abs everywhere not every it sounds sure, worse sure. than it was um but you've seen it melt but we've seen it melt 
Um, the sound was okay. There surprisingly wasn't that much chatter. The sure. tool was doing fine and the machine was doing fine. The plastic didn't like it. Um, so I'm like, man, well, what's the speeds and feeds with high speed steel and uh, ABS plastic? And Google didn't come back to me with anything. But then Alon did notice that on the tools packaging, <laughs> he's like, uh, Steve, this tool uh, says do not exceed 2400 RPM. <laughs> so we also learned uh, yesterday that uh, we could have turned that high speed steel drill bit into a grenade. <laughs> and we were lucky that that didn't happen. That's a little fast, going almost five times as rated speed. (laughs) So so much faster than what was recommended. But so we turned down the speed. I turned down the speed to 2,400 RPM. But even before I start the spindle again, um, I tried a new technique that I've always wanted to do with the Pocket NC, but I never see it on like the YouTube videos of people using machine tools. I've never seen this done, so I didn't know how possible it is. But I, I, you know, running through it hypothetically in my head, I'm like, you know, the spindle is an electric motor. Electric motors have 100% of their torque at zero RPM. Right. There shouldn't be a problem if I just run the spindle with tool right up to the part at zero RPM, right until it's just touching. Um, and, and I can manually, still manually turn the spindle with my hand. Uh, so it's just starting to scrape some material away. And then I turn on the spindle yep. and you know, now I'm already know that I'm making contact with it and I slowly walk the tool into the workpiece yep. uh one hundredth of an inch at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... I did that. It worked beautifully. Um the part came out to to desired spec. Yep. Um oh, I'm pretty Alon told me that it's not working. Uh, <laughs> but uh you know, that's not my problem. That's his problem. Um the, the operation went beautifully though. And <laughs> yeah, I'm was, happy with what I learned. Yeah, two things I want to bring up. So the technique that you're using called touching off. I just thought about it as you just now uh, recapped about it. So uh, right. there's a lot of ways to do that. Some people will uh do just like you mentioned and then record that measurement look at the uh digital readout record that measurement and then feed that back in so they'll actually back out and then uh, put that position back into the feed uh they'll use a piece of paper to see if that fits or doesn't move there anymore also then uh one thing you want to keep in mind is if you manufacture it correctly and it doesn't work design engineering fault it's it's not your fault it was made right it's not just, me just throw your hands in there Give the part, you're done. That's all. I worked properly. The machine tool worked <laughs> yeah. properly. That's I'll right. even give it to Alon's tool. That worked properly, yeah. too, even though we abused it by sending it to three times its speed. <laughs> also, uh, this is a really common application for a Bridgeport email. You know, we talked about that a couple of uh, weeks ago. That's, you know, everyone's favorite uh, manufacturing technology that yes, uh, nobody likes to talk about is that you always find a Bridgeport somewhere, you know, reworking parts to make a hole bigger or making a countersink. Uh, you would have just set that up on a Kurt Weiss on a Bridgeport, found the center and uh, countersunk the hole and you're done. It's, so yeah. that's awesome. Uh, one of the, I want to get into uh, uh, the first article this week uh, was about a crossover that I'm kind of interested in. So I've been watching a lot of this old house. Do you ever watch that? Dude, I haven't seen this old house since I was in the single digits of age. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Bob Vila back in okay, the day. Okay, boomer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I definitely saw a lot of that when I was growing up also under PBS, uh, so public broadcast system. So I would watch tons of that with some other you know, local uh, 
uh, shows. Uh, so now it's they have it's uh, streaming through one of the free TV streaming apps that I'm using. Uh, but I've been watching a lot of that since I've been at home and. You know, it's interesting that uh, both my wife and my kid hate it when I watch that. So I only get a few minutes when either they're sleeping or I can squeeze it in when, when they leave me alone. Uh, but one interesting thing that I've uh, that I've seen there is the amount of manual. Uh, of, of course, there's tons and tons of manual labor in construction, right? But yeah. there there are new techniques and new technologies to help alleviate or support the human in the construction space. Uh, so one thing I saw was. Um, manufacturing a house off-site. So they pre-built a house, a complete house uh, in a factory and they ship panels and then they just assemble on-site. So it was completely fascinating that you can work in a, you know, completely controlled, uh, environmentally controlled uh, atmosphere with full machinery to support uh, humans as they're moving um, the panels around. Everything's rolling on floors, on wheels. So there's very little uh, overexertion of the human. Uh, so they build up these panels fully finished with drywall paint and everything, even the exterior walls with uh, uh, electrical work and plumbing that they take it over. They do the quick connects between the panels, and then you basically have a shell of a house and then assembled in, you know, in a couple of weeks, uh, two days on site, basically. Uh, so that was one. The other one was a uh, uh, they were doing custom, I don't say custom, but uh, say copper gutters for one of the houses. So instead of shipping, you know, 40 foot long gutters on the back of this giant trailer, they actually had uh, progressive roll forming and a Ford Transit van. So I was like, they're forming on site. I was like, wow, this is absurd uh so it was really cool i was very surprised by that you know they said we need 100 feet they just had a a spool of material they a bunch of progressive dyes and they kept feeding i mean the only limitation was how many uh supports that they had to um uh, support the uh, length of the tubing but you know manufacturing on site was a a thing that exists for we'll say gutters right you could yeah uh, other things where uh may not be possible but i found an article from robotics tomorrow when they talked about uh, advanced manufacturing, getting into the construction site. Uh, what there's two applications that they talk about. One is additive in um, construction. Uh, so additively grown houses is a thing now. Uh, so there's a um, the article talks about a the the biggest 3D printed house. Uh, it's about 60, 6,900 square feet of floor space, which is really big. That's a big house, um, and I, th- I think that size of house kind of. Um, facilitates the added processes that they chose. Um, but it's a it's a demonstrator house that they're using. They expect that type of processing to hit Main Street. Uh, so their application is more, say, the higher-end market. I've seen a couple of articles where they talk about, say, more economic-focused uh, printing. So they do uh, smaller houses, say, a thousand square foot dome style where they could print something on site uh, within a couple of days and then you run plumbing and all that stuff to it. Uh, So it's very interesting. Uh, So the article quotes that they can um, estimate that uh, companies can reduce 25% of their, uh, can do this uh, 25% of the projects with 3D printed structures uh, and potentially reduce uh, labor demand by 70 to 90%. So for that style of houses, um, my big takeaway is, yeah, you're reducing labor demand, but it's uh, accelerating the building process. So it's not just reducing the cost of humans on site, it's uh, increasing your uh, processing time. Uh, the other application that they talked about was uh, this 
one robot called a tie, tie bot. Uh, and what they're doing is they're tying rebars um, on a construction site. So in this, they have a bridge. Uh, the bridge is going to be concrete reinforced with rebar. When they lay down the rebar, they have to manually tie every single one. So they do have some specialized machines to do that. But in this case, they have a uh, uh, autonomous robot uh, tying, uh, doing these rebar uh, attachments. And the big thing, of my takeaway for this is the article states that in 2014, there were 19,000 overexertion uh, injuries from construction sites just in the U.S. alone. So, you know, 19,000 injuries can be scaled down to something more manageable. I mean, uh, that's my big takeaway of these advanced technologies getting the construction sites is one removing the risk of humans being put in danger. Uh, and also the fact that you don't have to lift these heavy things. We can have a machinery do that for us. So that was a pretty interesting uh, article of the cross cutting technology of uh, automation and robotics. And we're seeing a lot of, uh, of robotics and entertainment and movie industry. And I'm glad to see it uh, transfer into construction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. What was the was the article that you found? More breaking stuff. Breaking um, stuff. <laughs> yeah. So to to continue my kind of theme I've got going on right now with uh, talking about uh, um, brake pads earlier and with the pickling and oiling. Yep. Um, so last week, a uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels, Engineering Explained released a new video on Porsche's new braking technology. Cool. And Porsche was one of the first companies going as far back as, uh, I think the mid eighties making carbon ceramic brake rotors, uh, not accessible, definitely not accessible, <laughs> but bringing them to the actual consumer market in the, in the hypercar form. Sure. But, um, you know, carbon ceramic brakes are, with exception to the expense of them are the, are the perfect brake rotors, um, for a performance application. Sure. Uh, there's, they're, they're fade free. Um, they generate very little dust and they take forever to wear. It's, right. it's, uh, race teams are really shocked every time they have, whenever they have to, uh, replace a carbon ceramic rotor and it's not often, uh, due to wear. Um, but, uh, again, the limiting factor here is cost sure. for a consumer. Um, you know, you, you, you'd lose your mind if you pulled into the dealership to get a brake job done and it ends up running $32,000 to be, replace all four rotors. It'll be better just to buy spot the dog and ride home on that. And then <laughs> <laughs> probably cheaper. I thought it wasn't a dog. Man. Oh, my bad. <laughs> spot that, uh, spot the horse. <laughs> but anyway, Compared to conventional brake rotors, which are way less expensive, um, ceramic brake rotors weigh a quarter of the weight. Sure. So you can get four carbon ceramic brake rotors that weigh as much as one conventional cast iron uh, brake rotor. Yep. Um, but what Porsche has done now to make to take the benefits of uh, carbon ceramic brake rotors being essentially a fade-free ride, that instant initial bite at any temperature, um, and low dust, low noise driving characteristics, which sure. everybody, you know, you want all those awesome performance characteristics, you know, uh, with brakes, but you don't want to pay the arm and a leg for carbon ceramic brakes. If, you know, it doesn't make sense to put carbon ceramic brakes on your Corolla. Right. But um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. You know, depends who. Depends who. Um, but... Uh, what Porsche has done is, you know, you think about 
you know, the noise that brakes make that can be associated with like machine tool chatter. Sure. You know, brake rotors are very similar to cutting tools. Right. And conventional brake rotors are like high speed steel tools. To get that more, to get more performance, you go with carbide. Sure. So Porsche has essentially taken you know the carbide cutting tool technology and put it on brake rotors. Now we'd be going in the opposite direction if they made a full size brake rotor out of carbide, uh, <laughs> right. because that would be the heaviest and have <laughs> the most rotational mass and have like the most sprung weight, which right. would be or unsprung weight, which would be terrible. Um, but uh, for performance aspect. So what they've done is they took tungsten carbide powder, uh-huh. run it through essentially a rocket engine, yep. through a rocket nozzle, and directing that jet of, of fire and tungsten, uh, tungsten carbide, they, they put that on the braking rotor surface of the cast iron rotor to plate the cast iron rotor in about one thou of tungsten carbide. Cool. And... You know, it's it's expensive, but it's still a lot less expensive than a carbon ceramic brake rotor. Yeah. And you're getting all of the benefits that you see when you make the jump from a high speed steel cutting tool to a carbide cutting tool. You get longer right. life. Yeah. You get you can push it harder and not get as much chatter. So that's right. where you're getting, you know, it, it has higher braking performance. It still has low dust and low noise because, you know, low dust is where, yep. you know, yep. Um, and the video doesn't does, mean you need new pads, but it, it, it's yeah. just sick because like, instead of spending, they're still crazy expensive right, doing that right. tungsten carbide coating. Um, I mean, even if you have conventional cast iron Porsche brake rotors, that's expensive, but you, you bought into the Porsche life. Yeah. yeah you, know, you already exactly. know that nothing's going to be cheap, but this is at least cheaper than carbon ceramic brakes. And it's still like 11 K to replace all four rotors. That's a little but, dicey. Uh, that's better than 32. <laughs> And there's a, a couple of things that uh, he does bring up in the video that I like a lot. Well, you know, you're only applying like a thou of material, but the wear rate versus that versus the brake pads is significantly different. They do a couple of wear testing. So everyone's concerned. Oh, someone went thou. Yeah. Once that one thou is gone, you want to replace your rotor. For most people, I would probably just keep going because I, <laughs> I can. Uh, but uh, they do bring that up. And also uh, he brings up the... Um, the fact that you have to apply more uniform pressure so you don't crack it or if you don't wear it down, that now you've got to step up to 10 piston calipers. So that's that's yeah. another big piece of honking piece of metal, plus the pads themselves are probably really big. So I can yeah. definitely see that. And he, he brought up an interesting point that I, I need to consider, keep thinking about more. That he mentions that the powder or the uh, brake dust that's generated that, you know, creates the uh, the gets everything dirty, the caliper and the wheels is from the mm-hmm. rotor actually wearing. Uh, and Porsche was brazen enough to say that this, this reduced the dust so much that they made the calipers white in the video, which is, yeah, that's a bold they, move. They were almost polished white. Yeah. Like, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. You're, you're talking about the caliper, the calipers, the yeah. Rotor. yeah. But yeah, they did. It was a bold move for them to make those calipers yeah. white. Cause you know, it's not going to look good if you get a little it's, bit of dust. No, on. It's not going to look good at all. Awesome. See, that's, that's a really good article. I also applaud Porsche real quick because um, talking about like brake noise, sure. like the, the 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 squealing that brakes make. Um, apparently, there's a lot of Porsche buyers. When you buy a Porsche, you know you're buying a performance vehicle. Usually. It's a sports car. Yeah. Yeah. You're going for performance over comfort and, you know, stuff like that. Sure. And Porsche, I applaud Porsche because they actually had to make a video to their customers explaining that 
Yes, we know your brakes probably squeal every now and then. Yes, it's normal. No, we're not going to do anything about <laughs> That's awesome. It. That's performance for you. I like it. Put your foot down, Porsche. That's awesome. Yeah. The last article I, I briefly want to touch on was a, uh, it's a large-scale 3D printer that incorporates some uh, measurement as part of the process uh, on machine measurement. So I, I thought it was an interesting article that uh, uh, this company, Thermo, uh, Thermo, Thermowood, excuse me, uh, has a large uh a large additive manufacturing so it's not a 3d printer because they because it'll print but also it'll trim and with the measurement capability it'll probe uh the part itself uh, so they incorporated a some technology from applied automation technologies to uh, be able to measure the part but also feed those measurements back into the system back into uh the part uh the uh the uh the cam processing itself uh, and i thought that was fairly valuable in terms of creating a, a, a closed loop manufacturing process uh, so they break down the uh, application to three processes right so you've got a pre-process so now i've got a part that i want to set up so incorporating the measurement capability of the machine and being able to define where the part is exactly through the software and um being able to modify the part in, pro in the machine is uh, fairly uh, interesting. But also now uh, in process, uh, so the second phase of it, uh, being able to uh, automate, uh, cut, measure, and cut again in a closed loop uh, process. So I thought that was really fascinating. So being able to, in this case, you know, um, grow the part. If you need a machine and you cut it, measure the part to see where it is, uh, and then machine again to get uh, the highest level of uh, precision that you're shooting for. Uh, and the last part of it is the post-processing. And this is where I, get, I find it a little bit interesting. They don't you know, completely illustrate a use case for the uh, process, the, the data afterwards. But if you think about it, now I've got uh, process and machine capability. So I'm, I define the surface, now measuring that surface on machine. Now I've got data of what I wanted to do versus what I uh, what I can do, and then I come back and uh, uh, do a closed loop manufacturing. But now I can store the information to see if my processing, if I have variations in my processing over time, or if I have other factors that are contributing to variations in my process. So I thought that capability is fairly interesting. But I do want to highlight that you know measuring in machine is kind of it's a little bit risky right so there's a couple of drawbacks to that one is the drawback of i've i've got a probe on machine so now what is the capability and calibration and rigor that i'm controlling my machine to my quality standards so that's something you got to be a little careful of i've got this robust machine that is precise but is it repeatable and uh accurate to your standard you know and that's the key thing is making sure that you know the relationship of that machine back to the standard. Uh, and the second part is, um, are you measuring the part in the restrained condition, which gets a little gray in a gray area for most manufacturing processes where okay. a lot of times they insist that uh, the part should be measured in the free state, which is fine. And most CMMs or uh, hand tools will measure the part in the free state. But uh, in this particular application, when you're doing uh, machine parts uh, or your measuring parts in machine or in situation now you've got a little bit of restraint so controlling that or allowing the engineering documentation to say yes you can measure in the in restraint condition these are your boundaries um to so you don't uh or damage the part or uh measure it how you'd want to see it in the application i think that's a interesting conversation to have uh as we move forward integrating um uh, measurement capability in uh, most of our subtractive manufacturing processes. 
So I thought it was a fascinating article. The big takeaway was their, you know, the uh, their 3D printer or their additive machine is so big that it doesn't make sense for them to print a part, manufacture the part, and then take it to another large CMM. They want to do it all within one capability. So I don't have 10 right. uh, large machines. I can get away with one. So that was an interesting article. It is. It is. You know, it reminds me that the next the next piece of tech that I really want, and I think you can agree on this, I think we both really want to see this on the test bed next, is uh, some advanced metrology. Yeah, um, yep. And... You know, I got to give metrology credit. It keeps developing and getting better and better, which the downside to to us especially is that means it's not getting cheaper anytime (laughs) soon. And so it's going to be still pretty relatively inaccessible for us. But I'm I'm just waiting to something that's within our budget and we can implement uh, some sort of advanced digital metrology. Uh, And hopefully that would be really nice to have a closed loop. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. That I think we got a ways to go, and I agree. Our next step is some piece of metrology equipment. Hopefully, you can connect it between the robotic arm and uh, yeah. our uh, our factory or a factory cart. Um, yeah. But I agree. Uh, we just got to find the right price point for us. That's the right. uh, current issue. Our pricing is uh, limited. But hey, this week at least we did our first hybrid uh, process. <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, we you, cut additive. <laughs> you cut an additively grown part. <laughs> We followed up some additive process with uh, that was not in house, but uh, with subtractive. So yeah. hey, I think that yeah. counts. Yeah, we'll take we'll take that. Awesome, Steve. Uh, where can they find more info about us? All right, people can find more info about us. Well, you know, you can find our t- uh, podcast on a- your favorite podcast app uh, just by searching AMT Tech Trends. Uh, for new more news and research, you can sign up to the weekly tech report at amtnews.org. And you can follow my amateur machinist blog at swarfysteve.blogspot.com. Awesome, Steve. Man, I had a really good time recording this. This is a good time. It's always a pleasure. This is a this is a really good one. Yeah. Great one in the case. Oh, this one crushes it. <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.